Revisited, the podcast. Nature Revisited is honored to have Maureen Van Orden and Andrew Wallach as sponsors for this edition. Patrick Curie, The Enchantment of Nature. My name is Maureen, and I'm proud to be sponsoring this edition of Nature Revisited. I currently live in a small village about an hour and a half from Cusco, Peru, with my husband, Andrew. When I'm not in my garden or hiking with Andrew, I volunteer with local groups to introduce and share nature with children. Even in Peru, a country with such incredible natural beauty, there is a lot of unappreciation for nature. Ever since my brother started Nature Revisited, the podcast has inspired me to try to make a difference, and I firmly believe it starts with the children. Again, I'm very proud to be sponsoring this episode and hope that all who are listening will share Nature Revisited as I do. Patrick Curie is an author, lecturer, scholar, and poet who lives in London, England. Patrick is also the editor of the online journal The Ecological Citizen, and has written extensively on J.R.R. Tolkien. In 2019, Patrick became a companion of the Guild of St. George. Patrick Curie is the author of the book Enchantment, Wonder in the Modern World, a book that discusses the ways that enchantment, which is a profoundly human experience, can play out in a wide range of ways. He joins me to talk about enchantment and its role in love, art, and nature. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Welcome, Patrick to Nature Revisited. I have been looking forward to this interview for some time now. I really enjoyed reading your book, Enchantment, Wonder in the Modern World. And I'm thrilled to be able to share your thoughts with my listeners. So how are things in London? 
Oh, things are fine. I, uh, I've been away for three weeks in, back in Canada, where I'm originally from. So it's, uh, it's nice to be home again, because this is home now. So let's start with, when did you first start your inquiry into enchantment, and why? Well, I um, started around the middle of the 1990s. At that time, I was deep into the study of divination, and I realized that sometimes a divinatory question of the I Ching gets asked. It can be answered with a startlingly personal and precise answer. When that happens, which isn't frequent, but it does happen, there's a moment of wonder. How could this book or these cards or these coins know that about me? Something like that. And I wondered to myself, what was, what's going on at that moment? What is that moment about? And then I, I gradually realized as I went into it, I found enchantment is a good way to describe it. And I, I gradually realized that a lot of my own life had been lived oriented to moments of enchantment, in, whether in love or in music or other arts or in nature. Conversely, maybe these two things are separable. Some of my life had been lived in flight from disenchantment, in flight from despair and meaninglessness, which are two opposites of enchantment. So gradually the, the professional interest and the personal interest uh, coalesced into, into one concern, and I really never felt like looking back. When were your first recollections of, of experiencing a moment of enchantment? And what inspired you to write the book? I only became conscious of it in the 1990s, but once I did, I, I realized it was kind of, it was a lifelong concern. Since I am a writer, naturally enough, I wanted to write about it, but I quickly became aware that I was not interested at all in explaining enchantment. I was interested in understanding it, really in understanding it better in order to honor it more and defend it, because I think it's a very important uh, human experience, which uh, we should not lose, uh, try not to lose and lose sight of. For obvious reasons, I would like to focus on the enchantment of nature. Can you tell us how that part of it has played in your life and how important that is? Well, I, th I think it's extremely important, and it hasn't just been important in my life. It's, it's important in many people's lives, and it's important for all of us. Let me try and explain what I mean. The connection of enchantment with nature um, happens in, I think, two ways. Uh, one is that many people's experiences of wonder are in nature, are at nature, of nature. They're either of wild beings that you connect, suddenly connect with, or very often it's a matter of certain wild places that seem to cast a spell. That's one way it's, it's important. Second way, however, is that if you look closely at experiences of enchantments, that some of the ones I mentioned earlier in love, falling in love, that's a classic one. The arts, which all of which are related to this, our senses in one way or another, painting, visual, audio, etc. So ultimately, all experiences of enchantment, I think, are actually rooted in nature and in our nature as natural beings, as, as I like to say, as earthlings. So uh, enchantment and nature have are profoundly connected, 
And of course, there this is, there's a third element to this, which is, as everybody pretty much now knows or should know, the natural world, the wild, what remains of the wild natural world in which we live, have to live, because we haven't got any other home. That world is under severe threat, not only from climate chaos, but from crashing biodiversity, mass extinctions, and so on. Although scientific knowledge is very important in, in the process of turning that around, I don't think it's going to suffice because one thing enchantment does is in that moment of wonder, it reveals to you, partly reveals, partly creates the the real value, the intrinsic value of the other, whoever, whatever the other is, it's enchanting you and shows you a truth about that value, which is that it's intrinsic, it's priceless, it's, it's, it's not negotiable. Uh, that's how you feel about somebody when you're in love with them or a place that you value. You might say it amounts to saying, sorry, not for sale. So without that experience of nature, without that kind of love of nature that enchantment can inspire, I don't think all the knowledge in the world is going to do the trick. In your book, at one point, you tried to describe what enchantment is, but you also said maybe you should start by saying what it is not. Well, I think you have to really proceed both ways. Um, I can I can say some things about what enchantment is, but I'm I'm not capturing it. I'm just pointing to it. That's all you can do with words is you can point at something, ultimately, and descri- try and describe it in a way that will convey something of it to your reader or your listener. And I try and do that in the book. So one example would be. Uh, most basically of all enchantment is an experience of sheer wonder. Now, that immediately suggests a contrast. What is the contrast with wonder? If you're, as it were, struck dumb with wonder or stopped in your tracks with wonder, these are common descriptions. One obvious contrast is will, especially the kind of will that's known as the will to power in which you're trying to make something happen or you're trying to make somebody do something or you're trying to make yourself do something. These are not states of enchantment and you can't actually do anything with with this wonder. It just is how things are at that moment. So that's one clear contrast is the will to power and by implication any kind of program or agenda. These are contrasts with enchantment. Now, another important thing about enchantment is that it's absolutely relational. In other words, you're always enchanted by something or someone, or you're in wonder at someone or something. So it's not just a state of mind. It's a relationship. And it's also not a state of the world in the sense of, oh, it's physiology or neurophysiology or matter or whatever. It's that too. So... One of the best descriptions of enchantment that I know comes from the social philosopher Max Weber, who called it concrete magic. And what he meant by that was that in that moment of enchantment, what's happening is both inner and outer. It's both material and mental, or if you prefer, spiritual. 
it, we have these distinctions, particularly to do with, say, subjective or objective, as if something had to be one or the other, couldn't possibly be both. But enchantment is upstream of all those distinctions, and it distinguishes it from a lot of religion. Religion is ambivalent in relation to uh, enchantment because religion tends to want to concentrate on the magic side alone, so to speak, the spiritual aspect, the eternal truth. It's not comfortable when that's all bound up with concrete, carnal, cer precise circumstances and so on. So that's one difference between religion and, and enchantment. Enchantment is is both carnal and spiritual. It's always an embodied experience. It's always an experience in a precise set of circumstances. Now, those circumstances may, when enchantment is happening, transform themselves into some intense other version of where you are and of the moment you're in, but it doesn't transcend them or leave them behind. It's a sort of imminent experience. It's a matter of going into your circumstances at that moment more deeply. And the more deeply you go into them, the roomier and more mysterious they get, not less. So that's one d distinction between, say, the sacred and enchantment. Let's assume the sacred is what religion defines as what's important, what is of ultimate value. Enchantment will certainly convince you uh, that the enchanting other, whoever, whatever it is, has ultimate value. It's bound up with your personal experience of it. It's not a dogma. One of the things that I experienced while reading your book was that I kind of realized that a lot of my experiences that I had over my lifetime could have been moments of enchantment but the word enchantment wasn't part of my internal language. And that's what I liked about your book, is it gave me a sense of what those experiences were. Do you think that's true for a lot of people, that we have moments of enchantment, but because it's not part of our internal language, where we don't necessarily identify it as such? I think that's um, absolutely true. I think it's true for, for nearly everybody. Nearly everybody has had or you know has experienced that has had that in their lives those moments and they're actually in a very personal private way very very important to that person and in terms of intense enchantment they can really it can give you a reason to live it can inform your your values not part of the vocabulary the general cultural vocabulary the good thing about that would be to help us value those moments more and not dismiss them they're, they are t too easily dismissed, and I think that's that's a mistake. <laughs> they should be accepted as a gift, a really special gift that uh, is not common or automatic. One reason it's, it's a gift is because, as I, I drew a contrast to begin with, with will. You can't make enchantment happen by willpower. And in, in art, for example, I think every artist knows that you can have the best, for example, if you're making a movie, you can have a great, you got a lot of funding, you can have a great script, great cast, etc., and the things are done, because enchantment hasn't attended. So really, you, it's not under your control. That's why you should accept it as a gift and think about and work with what it has shown you. It's important. 
What is animism and how does that relate to enchantment? As a continuation of what I was just saying, since you can't make enchantment happen by willpower, really all you can do is stay open to it. Another important thing about enchantment is that when, when you're enchanted by somebody or something, even if it's an intense experience, and of course the intensity will vary. I think it varies from merely charming, which is kind of low, nice, but it's low-level enchantment, through delight, through what I call deep enchantment, which is full-blown joy. And the more intense it becomes, the more the other party is... Now you're not just perceiving them, they are perceiving you. So it's an active, dynamic relationship. Now, the strange thing about enchantment is that in, in, in that kind of relationship, the other party can be what is normally considered inanimate or biologically inanimate, in any case, technically inanimate, like a tree or a, a stream or a rock or a work of art hanging on a wall. It seems to be, and in, and in this case, I would say, if it seems to be, it is speaking to you, trying to tell you something or show you something. So the best thing you can do is as you go through life, stay open as a matter of principle to that sort of thing happening. It's an attitude that um, a very good travel writer called Freya Stark described as fearless receptivity. And that's the essence of animism. You're prepared to accept and work with whatever, whenever life pops up whether the thing in question is animate or inanimate or anything else, that's a purely secondary technical matter, not an interesting one ultimately. So what is the difference between wildness and wilderness when it comes to the enchantment of place? Enchantment is wild, and that's one of its inner affinities with nature, with the natural world in the sense that, as in any true relationship, nobody's in charge. In a true relationship of two or more parties, each one is responding to the other and initiating things which then have effects to which you react, etc. It's not a case of, I'm determining whatever happens to you and with you. That's not really a relationship. That's dominance or slavery or exploitation, but it's not a full relationship. So there's a wildness in the sense that no one person is actually in control in true relationships and in therefore in enchantment. Now, wilderness is a state which is very, very rare now in the, in the world because of the dominance of our species. It's full-blown wildness, as it were. But even in places that are, that, that are not completely made over for our purposes, human purposes, not completely instrumentalized, there's still a degree of wildness because there's a degree to which the natural beings there, the plants, the animals and so on, are living out their own lives with their trying to realize their own purposes, which may have nothing to do with ours. You know, Thoreau is famous for saying, in wildness is the salvation of the world. He didn't say wilderness. He said wildness. And I think that's true, because what you want to not end up with is a world that's apparently wholly ordered to our 
strictly our human purposes, and in, in practice not all humans, of course, just a certain small sect of them. That's a wholly disenchanted world. There's no room for life. I don't actually think that kind of world is ultimately possible, but a lot of enormous harm can be done in the attempt to realize it. We have been dangerously disenchanted for a long time. And when and how did we lose our connection with the enchanting, particularly with nature? And how has that really affected us? These are big generalizations, but that's kind of unavoidable. So I don't think it's necessarily problematic to generalize. You just have to try and do it carefully and responsibly. And I would say, along with a lot of other people, that the modern world, or let's call it modernity, really started to get underway in a big way in the 17th century. And what you had is science becoming a major player. And I, I, I mean something that ended up eventually as what you could call techno-science, where technology and science itself, scientific knowledge, become indistinguishable. Um, you had the state, the nation, modern nation state getting underway and becoming very powerful as manifested in colonialism and imperialism. You had a capitalist world order, economic world order getting underway, embracing the whole world, the beginnings of globalism. That process really never stopped, never looked back, became a juggernaut. The project of that kind of world entails disenchantment. Now, the project of modernity was described once as the rational mastery of nature, including human nature. That's a recipe for disenchantment. And we are not rational in the sense of machines. We're not calculating machines. We are living, breathing, embodied, embedded, ultimately natural beings. Part of our nature is culture, that's fine, but that kind of being can't survive, ultimately, a totally rationally mastered world. And the term mastery, that's really a giveaway because, as I said, enchantment is wild and involves a relationship. Mastery doesn't involve any relationship. It involves a single party who's ordering, directing, manipulating, exploiting everything and everyone else. So um, that's a recipe for a lot of unhappiness of the disenchanted kind, which involves, as I said earlier, ultimately despair and meaninglessness. The kind of attitude that says, well, was summed up by Ronald Reagan when he was talking about redwood trees, why should we save them? He said, well, when you've seen one, you've seen them all. That's a perfectly disenchanted attitude. Now, lack of enchantment, unenchantment, un as it were, is perfectly normal and natural. Enchantment can't be happening 24-7. It just, that's not in its nature. It comes and goes. And when it comes, you should welcome it, but when it goes, you have to let it go. Let it go, if you possibly can, which is not always very easy. Lack of enchantment, as I said, is perfectly normal and natural. In fact, without that background, you wouldn't be able to recognize enchantment as, as anything special as happening when it does happen without it. 
You say that disenchantment is different from non-enchantment. How so, and who benefits from our disenchantment? Well, I like the, I like your question. Non-enchantment is better than unenchantment, by the way. And uh, of course, the question of who benefits is, is sometimes a very important one. And who benefits from disenchantment? If people are wholly or nearly wholly disenchanted, they have no fundamental values. There is nothing about which they can say, not for sale. This is of ultimate value. You can't have it. You, it's, too, it's too important. It's too precious. Then you have converted everybody into consumers. There's another phenomenon. I call it glamour which is enchantment that isn't wild anymore, enchantment that's been put to work, put to service. It's manipulable. It's embodied in really the advertising industry, above all, but also political stand and other branches of advertising. What's happening is that active disenchantment is taking place, substituting glamour for real enchantment, which cannot be manipulated or cannot be used for anything because it's wild, and you end up a loyal consumer trying to satisfy your desire for enchantment. But of course, glamour doesn't satisfy it because it's not the real thing. So you keep coming back for more. So there is a program at work here. And subduing the natural world and putting it to work in service of that program is a big part of it. Very, very dangerous. So how does one encounter the enchanted, particularly in nature? Well, in relation to what I was saying earlier, the important thing is to stay open to it and look out for it, stay receptive, and avoid conditions where everything is tightly controlled because there's very little, there's less opportunity for wildness and enchantment to get in the picture if your experience of nature is being micromanaged and hyper-controlled. That's really discouraging for enchantment. So I think this has a lot of implications for the education system and how education is undertaken. Particularly, education should be encouraging a, a a respectful and even wondering relationship with with the natural world and young people terribly important but they have to be careful how they do it and not let if i may say so health and safety considerations dominate everything to the extent that you're only allowed to have certain kinds of very closely defined experiences certainly their their safety is a consideration but you have to be able to take chances and learn things as well in a natural context, say canoeing down a river or whatever. So there's a, there's a middle ground there between control and encouragement, which is um, challenging, I think. So what is the relevance of enchantment in nature when it comes to our ecological crisis? The relevance is that if we're not enchanted by nature, we won't respect it and see it as a valuable in its own right as opposed to what it can do for us. You know, one of the definitions of enchantment I think is, 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 I think is a very good one was one by J.R.R. Tolkien, who said that ultimately enchantment is a love and respect for things, whether animate or inanimate, 
an unpossessive love of them as other. That's terribly important. Not a love of them as what they can do for us, but a love of them in their own right, in their own ways. This is the paradox that faces people who want to encourage wonder at nature in order to help save it. As I said, the moment um, enchantment is enrolled in a program or an agenda, it disenchants it. It disenchants that experience. Enchantment won't stick around. It, it cannot survive a willful program. So the paradox is you can't use it even to re-enchant the world. What you can do is, as I said, stay open to it, but also create the conditions for enchantment to happen. So you take, perhaps take young people, make sure they're okay, put them in semi-wild, at least, not perilously wild, but reasonably wild conditions of nature, and let happen what happens within certain broad limits defined by their, you know, their physical well-being. You can encourage enchantment. You can keep open to it. You can look out for it when it happens, and you can work with it. But you can't make it happen, not even for good purposes. This is kind of difficult for some people to accept, but I'm afraid it's pretty much non-negotiable. Why is it important to experience enchantment, and why we can't live without it? Well, I, I might quote Tolkien again. Uh, he was very good on enchantment. It figures very importantly in his work uh, through the, the elves, which often have no equivalent in other uh, fantasy or other kinds of literature. And his word for it was fairy. And he said, fairy is as necessary for the health and complete functioning of the human as sunlight is for physical life. So he didn't think that you could be a healthy human being without some wonder in your life. And as I said, those moments of wonder are very important for showing you certain truth about the world or about the enchanting other. There's a nice story by uh, the psychologist and philosopher William James, who once wrote, Jack is in love with Jill. Uh, Jill seems to be perfectly ordinary to everybody else but not to Jack. So who sees Jill more as she really is? Jack or everybody else? And his answer is, Jack does. The fact that he's enchanted by her, in love with her, enables him to see things about her, true things, that nobody else can. So could we live without that kind of experience in our lives? I suppose we could survive biologically, but it would be a miserable, a very limited life, I think. Do you have anything else that you would like to share with my listeners? I think uh, I just want to say that enchantment is a very particular kind of human experience, and I, I want to respect its uniqueness. I don't want to roll it up in a bowl with, say, mystical experience or the sublime or any other category. It's its, it's, its own thing. There's a disinterested quality in the true sense of the word about enchantment. You know, it's not a selfish thing. It's not about you or about me. It's about perhaps us or us and them. 
I love that quality. It's a delicate quality, even when it can be, even when it's powerful. There's a delicacy to it and a sharpness. But when it happens, it's really important in your life. I think this is an an interesting thing to to think about, not only in our own lives but in human experience as well. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Patrick Curie and that you get a chance to read his book, Enchantment, Wonder in the Modern World. If you would like to learn more about Patrick Curie, visit his website, patrickcurie.co.uk. And once again, Nature Revisited would like to thank Maureen Van Norden and Andrew Wallach for sponsoring this episode. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Nature Revisited, please visit our website, nordenproductions.com support. The opening poem was Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost and read by Jamie Horton. The music for this edition was Franz Litz, La Campanella. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature.